to this time all week long and to say in these words, let's open our Bibles together. To the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, probably not a book that we visit very often, but I want to ask you a question before I continue our series that is a survey through all the books, all 66 books of the Bible. And we've covered 14 books. This is our 15th week in this study. We've had a few weeks off as we've uh, celebrated uh, Palm Sunday, Easter, and a few other things that we've looked at. We received communion together last week. What a sweet service. What a precious time together. And what a milestone for Hope Church in Asheville that we uh, had two weeks ago, uh, 12 people covenant together as the founding, starting core group of Hope Church Asheville. And then this past week, we were able to receive communion together. But as we're going through our study of all 66 books of the Bible, doing an overview each week, I'm just amazed. I don't know why, because God promised to honor his word, but I'm just amazed week after week after week at the things I learn, at the things God challenges my heart with, and exactly how I think the things we're studying each week is exactly in line with what God has for us as a church with where we're at on this journey as we're progressing together. But I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you know about the book of Ezra? I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think in your heart. What do I know about this book of the Bible? We have been a blessed, incredibly blessed generation to have access to all of God's word. People have shed their blood, died, paid a great price, endured great persecution, been separated from their families, imprisoned, martyred, so that we could hold God's word in our hands. There have been generations that have lived that did not have access to this book, the book of Ezra. And it is an incredibly important book to understanding the entire storyline of Scripture. So I want to do a little recap to where we are through these first 15 books of the Bible. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, God calls out a people. He calls out Israel, the descendants of Abraham, as a special nation. And through Moses, he teaches them his law. Then through the book of from the books of Joshua through 2 Chronicles, God gives Israel a land and he gives them a king. But Israel loses both of these when they are consistently disobedient to God. God punishes his people as he prophesied through his prophets that he would. And then from the book of Ezra where we're starting today through the book of Esther, which we will cover in a few weeks... God restores Israel from exile to their own land once again. In the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles that we covered the last time we were in the study were written to remind the people who they were. Have you ever forgotten your identity as a child of God? Have you ever needed to be reminded? Has God ever had to wake you up in your disobedience? in your struggle, and be reminded that you are a born-again child of God. That's why the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles were written to remind the returning exiles that they were the covenant people of God and that they were the people of the book. The pagan nations made fun of Israel by calling them the people of the book. Oh, they have a book for that. All their worship, all that comes from a book. They live their whole lives by that book. And they made fun of them, and the people of Israel embraced that. They said, yes, we are a people of the book. This book defines our lives. It gives us our identity. But they had gone away into 70 years of punishment, 70 years of exile, and they didn't have access like they did before. They didn't go to synagogue. They didn't go to the temple to worship. And they had forgotten their identity. They were living in Babylon, and many of them had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten the promises of God. It's important to know that the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra that we're covering today, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, 
Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. It's a lot of big names. But all of those books were written at the same time period. They're covering the exact same things. In our Bible, it's a little confusing because we have uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then you had Chronicles before that, and then you have Daniel that's separated by five or six books, and then you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that are towards the end of the New Testament, but they're all happening at the same time. And when you tie these books together and see what is happening, it's, it's amazing. These books are being written while the people are in exile, and then as they're coming out of exile, and it chronicles what God does. The summary of the book of Ezra that we're going to cover today is, is pretty easy to remember. Number one, because it's alliterated. I don't do this a whole lot, but it's really easy to remember. Uh, the, the three sections of this book are, first of all, the return. Then we see the restoration. Then we see the repentance of God's people. The return, the restoration, and then the repentance. So that's going to be the lens through which we look at the rest of this book. I want to remind you, as we covered in the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, that Jeremiah 29 verse 10 prophesied the 70-year exile. And in these books, we're going to see, in the book of Ezra, we're going to see that God's word came true 100%. Everything that God promised, everything that the prophets the, the men of God, the, the ones who spoke the words of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, 100% of their prophecies came true. But Jeremiah wasn't the only one that prophesied. Isaiah 44 verse 28, we see that the prophet Isaiah prophesies Jerusalem being rebuilt and the temple foundation being laid. Which is miraculous considering that they were captured and the, the walls and the temple were destroyed they were taken away into captivity into Babylon. It's, it's breathtaking to see in the pages of these books and for the people that were living there to see this happening real time before their eyes, the promises of God coming true. So the end of the book of Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra, it starts, ends and begins the exact same way. The proclamation of King Cyrus for the exiles to return. God changed the heart of the king, as we see him doing all throughout scripture. Zerubbabel and Joshua were descendants of King David and Aaron the priest. You just got to look how God fulfills his promises because his covenant promises are connected to, to the things that he prophesied. He promised that uh, someone would sit on the throne of King David for all of eternity. A descendant of King David would be on the throne. And the priesthood was given to Aaron and the Levites. And these two men who are a picture of God's covenant with his people. They're the ones that step in and answer the call to rebuild the house of God. They rebuild the altar of God first. And then the temple foundation is laid and we see the people of God celebrating some of them are happy and some of them it even seems like maybe they're sad because it wasn't as impressive as the first temple so we have some people rejoicing some people crying some people happy some people sad but there's music and there's joy and there's celebration at God's promise being fulfilled but as it always happens when God is doing something when God is moving when the church of Jesus Christ when his people are obeying him, the enemy is going to get involved. And then we see in this book that the enemies bribed the leaders and they fought against the work. And guess what? It seemed like they were successful. For 14 years, the building of the temple was stopped. Imagine 14 years. Go back 14 years. Where, where were you 14 years ago? Imagine for the past 14 years, it was the law of the land that you could not gather together and worship. That the very things you believed, your very faith, was being attacked by people who should have been supporting you. People who once claimed to be the people of God. They were collaborating together with the enemies of God and they stopped the work for 14 years. To put that in perspective, 
Mia would have been a baby 14 years ago. I cannot imagine her entire lifetime not being able to worship God. Seeing the work that God has called us to do as a church be stopped because of the enemies of God. The books of Haggai and Zechariah prophesy that even though the work had been stopped, it would continue. And the work of rebuilding the temple would be accomplished. And we see this happen when Darius finds King Cyrus' decree. And he affirms the rebuilding of the temple, gives them the authority, sends them back, and they accomplish the work that was started. And this is where we see Ezra stepping onto the scene. We believe Ezra wrote this book, and he writes what happened leading up to his time. And then at one point in the book, he starts writing in first person. He starts talking about, I did this, and I said this, and I was a part of this. So he's giving the history, and then he starts telling his story. And King Artaxerxes, which is one of those names we read in Scripture, and we're like, what in the world? But he was actually, we believe, the son-in-law of Queen Esther. I see all these books are connected. We believe he's the son-in-law of Queen Esther. And they send Ezra back to Jerusalem. When Ezra gets there, he leads the people in prayer and fasting. He discovers that the people are disobeying God, intermarrying with pagans, idol worshipers. And that holds the potential of starting this whole cycle of judgment again. So Ezra repents before God and he commands the people to repent and obey God. And they do repent. There's a revival. The people return to God. They agree to the covenant of God and they forsake their sinful ways. And then there seems to be this abrupt end to the book of Ezra. And we're like, wait, what happened? But in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So there's really not an abrupt end. What happens is the story just continues on and we've separated it because of the different sections. It helps us uh, understand what's going on a little bit better. So Nehemiah, what we're covering next week, is the second part of this book. So I want us to walk together through the outline. I've just given you the storyline, but let's look at the outline of this book because there's so much application in this book. I'm just giving you an overview of it. But the Bible says that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for us, for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, how we should live our lives. So can we look at an obscure book in the Old Testament and learn something to help us live our lives today, this week, according to God's will? I believe we can. And instead of just saying it, I want to show you where we get this. So let's look at the outline. This book starts out in chapter 1 through chapter 2 with Cyrus' decree and the return of exiles from Babylon. It's, think about how amazing and earth-shattering it would have been for a pagan king to say, God put this on my heart and you're going to go back and you're going to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. And God's name is going to be glorified. God tells us in the book of Proverbs that he moves the heart of the king, like a stream. He holds it in his hands. He's the sovereign God. He's the creator. He is in control of our world. There are people, there are Christians that that bristle up to that teaching that God is in control. And I just don't understand it, church. I don't understand why a child of God would be afraid of the fact that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's on the throne. Yes, we make choices. Yes, the king, King Cyrus, made choices. But our choices can never overrule God's will and God's power and God's authority. God is accomplishing a plan and we can either get on board and be a part of the plan or we can fight against God and be judged. And we see God controlling events, political events, accomplishing his will. Can God do that today? Is God any less powerful today than he was then? How much time did we spend this week watching the news and complaining about what's happening in our country, what's happening around the world, and we totally forget about God? We act like we are defeated. We act like somehow the enemy finally figured out a way to defeat God's will in our country. 
or in our churches or in our city and community. No, God is in control. There's always a remnant of God's people. And it's our job to obey God and to live according to his word and according to his will. So the things I want you to notice from this first section, the first two chapters, is that God is sovereign over the nation and over the kings. This was Cyrus' proclamation, this pagan king's proclamation. He said that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. And because the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, that's why he made the proclamation. That they go back and God's will, God's prophecy be fulfilled and the will of the Lord be accomplished. That needs to remind us today that God's promises will be fulfilled. Church, God's given us promises, individual promises, corporate promises. He promises that he will never leave us, never forsake us. He promises that his word is truth. We live in a day and age that forsakes truth. Truth, it seems, lies dead in the street, but his truth abideth still, as the old hymn says. His kingdom is forever. The kingdoms of this world will one day bow down and worship at the feet of King Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. God is sovereign. And I need to remind you today because we do live in an evil day. We live in a day, just like every day, where there is an attack against the things of God, against the church of Jesus Christ, against holiness, against truth, against righteousness and morality. But evil days are numbered. We need to remember this. God said they would go into captivity for 70 years. And for 70 years, it would look like Babylon and the, the Medes and the Persians. Their empires, it seemed like they had defeated the people of God and the word of God was dead and the temple lay in rubble and ruins. But God said it would only be for 70 years. The days were numbered. Evil has a time stamp on it. God will accomplish his will. And the same thing goes for us today, church. We can't lose heart. We can't give up. Yes, we face challenges that we never thought we would face. It seems like even the church is turning its back on God's word. We have places in our town, just down the street, surrounding us, that call themselves churches. They say they preach the gospel, and they don't believe this book. They're not affecting one one particle of God's plan. They're not changing God's timeline by one second. What those places that call them churches, themselves churches, what they're doing is they're aligning themselves against God and God will judge them, especially if they are truly God's people. God will judge the world and he will judge his church. Matter of fact, judgment starts in the house of God. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we understand that God is in control and that we have hope. And that evil cannot prevail against our Lord. Let's move on in this outline. The second section we see is chapter 3 through chapter 6, verse 22. And this is where the returned exiles rebuild the temple on its original site. The foundations of the temple are laid, fulfilling prophecy. The enemies, starting in chapter 4, stall the project and they conspire against the project, but the work is resumed and the local officials try to put an end to it again, but King Darius, another king that God holds his power and his authority in the palm of his hand, he discovers King Cyrus decree and he reaffirms the decree and gives the authority to God's people and the work is completed in chapter 6. So I want you to think about the foundations of the temple being laid. Why do we start with the foundation when we want to see change? If you want to see change in your day, if you want to see change in your home, in your culture, in your personal life, we can spend all day talking about the fruit 
talking about the symptoms of things that need to be changed. But what is the root? What is the foundation? The worship of God. God's word is the foundation. That's what the temple represented. God's very word. God's presence meeting with mankind. The worship of the one true God. And the foundation matters, church. The foundation of this church matters. The foundation is Jesus Christ. We can't build on any other foundation. You can't build your life on any other foundation. You can't build your family on any other foundation. You can't build your worship on any other foundation. It starts with Jesus Christ. The foundation matters. But as we fight to rebuild the foundation in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our country and community, we need to remember that the enemy is going to fight against God's word and his will. And the enemy is going to fight against the true worship of the one true God. This week in our country, people are trying to tell the church they can and can't say certain things that align with God's word. This week it's being fought for. There are laws being passed in our country that directly go against God's word. Why are we surprised by this? Why does that cause fear in our hearts? It should cause righteous indignation. It should cause anger, righteous, holy anger. But it shouldn't cause fear. God is on his throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. The enemy is going to fight against God's worship. The enemy's going to fight against God's will. Our job is to fight for God, for his true worship, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can't slow down. We can't back up. We can't give up. We can't be intimidated. We've got to press on, church, because God's promises are true. We learn that as we look at the book of Ezra. What they were fighting for is the same thing that we're fighting for. The truth of the gospel, the proclamation of the truth, the eternal truth of God. Then we move on to the next section where Ezra the priest comes to Jerusalem to establish the law of Moses. This starts in chapter 7, goes through chapter 8, verse 36. This is where King Artaxerxes gives Ezra authority to establish the Mosaic law. God's word. God's teachings. The prescription for the proper worship of God in his temple. And I want to read you what I think is the, the most important verse in the book of Ezra. Chapter 7 verse 10 it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And with that in mind, he goes to Jerusalem with a new group of exiles returning to the land and they bring royal gifts to accomplish the work in the temple. So what do we learn from this section? Again, we're doing a 30,000 foot overview of sections of the Bible. But what can we learn from this story? Why did God preserve this story for us? Well, first of all, I want you to know that promotion comes from God. Ezra was given the authority to do what God called him to do. He was exalted. Basically, he was in charge of everything when he returned. He had the authority of the king and no one could stand against him. Where did that come from? It came from God. All authority belongs to God. God delegates authority to kings and presidents and rulers and nations and kingdoms on this earth. But all authority belongs to God. He can give it and he can take it away. He's always in control. And we see in the life of Ezra a man that is dedicated to God and God exalts him and uses him in a powerful way. And if you're anything like me, as you read a story like this in the Bible, your heart is saying, God, please use my life in that way. Let my life count. Don't let me waste my life. Let my life be connected to your eternal word, your eternal purposes. I want my life to count. But we don't go through life trying to exalt ourselves. If you want to be exalted, 
Humble yourselves at the feet of God. Get on your face like Ezra did. Repent. Ask God to forgive your sins. Ask Him to use you and get involved in what God is already doing in His world, in His church. And God will use your life. I want my life to count. There was a time in my life where I realized it wasn't about money. Where I realized it wasn't about climbing a ladder. I realized it wasn't about promotion. I realized everything in life was, that mattered was connected to God. Only the things that are done for Christ will last, will matter. That doesn't mean money's a bad thing. It doesn't mean a job is a bad thing. It doesn't mean having fun or enjoying the gifts that God's given us. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but that cannot become our priority. We can't wrap our entire lives around anything other than God because that's idolatry. Have you sat down and said, God, what is your will for my life? What is your will for my family? And followed wherever God led you. If anything else becomes before God, if you establish the money is all that matters, okay, now God, will you bless my family? That's, that's the wrong way. If you establish God, I just want to have a good time. I want everybody to like me. And then I want to do what you say. Your life is out of order. It starts with God, with His kingdom, with His will. Seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Promotion comes from God. We also learn that God's word is central to our life, to our worship, to our families. The establishing of the temple was in order to proclaim the word of God to His people and to obey the word of God. And we need to remember where God guides, God will provide for his people. God had commanded Ezra to do something the same way he's going to command Nehemiah in the next book to do something. But they didn't have the ability. They had to pray. We see both of these men praying and begging God and God makes a way. As a matter of fact, God already had a plan before he called them to do it. So they trust in God. I love that verse. Ezra had set his heart. To study the law of the Lord. Let's pause right there. How many of us in this room have set our hearts to know God's word? It didn't say just to read it. It said to study it. To learn it. To absorb it into our life, our consciousness. That everything we do flows from this word. Have you set your heart? That doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't say he woke up one morning and just stumbled into obeying God's word. It says he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, but he doesn't stop there. He says, and to do it, we should know God's word. We should be a people of the book, but we should learn it in order to be able to do it. And then it goes a step further and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. There's a prescription for your life. Some of us, that needs to be our lives first. We need to set our hearts to study God's word, the law of the Lord, which teaches us about our God, to know him through his word, and then to do it, and then to teach it to others. That's the prescription for a healthy society, for a society that honors God. But if you break down at any of those points, if you stop studying God's word, all society breaks down. If you study God's word and then you don't do it, that's what the people of Israel did. They were still going to the temple. They were still worshiping, but they also worshiped idols. And they also disobeyed everything God said. And they had this mentality that a lot of religions have in our day. Well, I can live how I want to, but then I'm going to go confess. I'm going to go offer this sacrifice. I'm going to go do my duty on the weekend. And it doesn't matter how I live. We're to study God's word, obey God's word, and teach his word, and to pass it on. The next and the final section of the book of Ezra covers chapter 9 and chapter 10. This is where Ezra discovers and confronts the problem of idolatry that is being reintroduced into Israel. Imagine these people see God's promises. It's all, it reminds me of the people that that are about to be murdered at the edge of the Red Sea. 
Moses had led them out of Egypt. God had delivered them. And then they're at the Red Sea. And all of a sudden they turn around. And all the armies of Egypt are coming at them. And they're terrified. They speak against Moses. They speak against God. But God delivers them. He takes them through the Red Sea. Performs an incredible, mind-blowing miracle. They get to the other side. The, the armies of Egypt are destroyed. God keeps his promises. Sealing the delivery of his people. They get to the other side. They celebrate. They sing. They write songs. They dance. They, they have this big celebration. And the very next day, they start complaining. They forget about what God did in their lives. That's, that's what these people are doing. God just works miracles right in front of their eyes. These pagan kings sign this, this seal, this edict that they can return to the land. They go back. They see this miracle happen. They get back to the land. And the first thing they start doing is marrying pagan idol worshipers. And that's the, one of the main things that God had commanded them not to do. Well, when... Ezra arrives back 50 years later after they had already been in the land and he comes in and does what God has him to do. He realizes these people have disobeyed God. They're starting this cycle of pagan idol worship again. And that's what caused us to go into captivity. So he discovers this. He prays. He confesses the sins of the people. Then he commands the people to forsake their disobedience of God. And the people actually do it. There's a revival. They obey. Now these verses at the end of the book of Ezra cause a little bit of a dilemma for Bible believers. And we need to deal with this problem today. So the people went back, blatantly, openly, boldly disobeyed God and married pagan idol worshipers. And they're living in covenant with people that are worshiping idols. And no doubt they're already beginning to worship their idols as well as worshiping the one true God. Ezra, the man of God, stands up and tells them to put away these wives that they had taken wrongly. Now, the Bible tells us God hates divorce. Is that true? It's absolutely true. God does hate divorce. But we see this example in Scripture. And this is something we need to struggle with. We need to look at what does this mean for our lives? Where God has a law, they disobey the law of God, and to set things right, they had to do something that seemed like they were further disobeying God's law. Here's what we know. Through the word of God, the man of God stood up and proclaimed, thus says the Lord, and the people obeyed, and God blessed them. I've, I've heard uh, the theologians and some uh, Authors of commentary saying that this was wrong. The people should not have divorced the wives that they took in disobedience to God. We can study that. We can debate that. Here's what we know. God is serious about his word. And God was doing what he was doing in Israel. And this one thing, it's not just this small thing. It's the very thing that calls the people of God to be sent into exile. Marrying idol worshipers and adopting their ways. So what does this tell us? Number one, as Christians, we must obey God's specific commands in our lives. God's given us specific commands about how we live our lives. God has commanded us to live holy lives. To live clean, pure lives before Him. To worship Him in spirit and truth. To love God. To love others. To abstain from all fornication, whether you're single, whether you're married. To live within God's boundaries in every area of your life. There are specific commands in scripture. And they challenge the bent of our hearts. Every single one of us in this room, let's just get personal. We're all born with a bent towards sin. Here's, here's the rub. My sin's different than your sin. Some people are born prone to pride. Everything's about power. Everything's about pride. And they struggle with that. Some people don't struggle with that. They're not even tempted by that. But they're tempted by money and pleasure and fame and celebrity status and popularity and friends. They worship that. 
Some other people are like, man, I don't care about power. I don't care about money. I don't care about all that. But some people struggle with lust. And it works out in their life in different ways. And we're called to obey the specific commands of God in Scripture. For me, I don't need to go through pointing my finger at everybody else in this culture that's disobeying God because the truth is I'm disobeying God in areas of my life. And I struggle and I'm fighting against my own sin. So many people want to know what God's will is for their life. Where they need to live, who they need to marry, what job they need to have. All these big concept ideas that they want to know God's will for that. But where God has revealed his specific will in scripture, we ignore it. Why would God reveal his will for our future lives if we're ignoring the one thing that we know he's telling us to do right now? I can't tell you where he wants you to go to college, what job he wants you to have, who he wants you to marry. But I do know that he tells you to abstain from fornication. I do know that he tells you to be honest. I do know that he tells you to live in unity. I do know that he tells you to read God's word, to pray, to humble yourselves. We need to make a list of the things that are specific commands of God for me. And if I start walking in them and obeying them and living in step with the Holy Spirit. That's where we see the fruit of the Spirit come in our lives. And then you will be amazed at how God begins opening doors and revealing His will for areas of your life. Like, you need to move to Asheville, North Carolina. That one came out of nowhere. I never expected that. But that didn't just, that wasn't written on the sky one morning when I woke up. It came from years and years and years of walking with God, obeying God in specific ways being in tune with the Holy Spirit and God opening doors and working in my life in mundane and miraculous ways. We learn that from this book. We must obey God's specific commands. We must be killing sin in our lives, church. We all struggle with sin. We must fight against our sin. We must make war on our idols. This is exactly why the children of Israel were disobedient in an entire generation for 70 years. They lived and died in captivity, separated from everything that was good and righteous and holy and that God called them to be as a light for the nations. Their disobedience, they refused to fight their idols, they embraced their idols, and it destroyed their lives. There are people in this room right now that have a little sin. It's a little secret pet sin. Maybe nobody knows about it. You've got it hidden away, stuffed in your pocket, hidden in the closet. You only bring it out when no one else is around. And this is a little bitty pet sin. You have no idea, and I have no idea, what that can do to destroy your family, to destroy your life. These little hidden pet sins. You can't handle sin. I cannot handle sin. It will destroy me. It will ravage my life, ravage my family, except for the grace of God. We're called to make war on our idols. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Before this week, before I started studying through this book, I had no idea that this one obscure Old Testament book that I've really never given a whole lot of attention to before had so much application for my life today. And I've been challenged this week to recommit my life to God, to recommit my heart to God, to listen to his word, to obey his word, to teach others his word, to fight against idolatry, to kill sin in my life and obey God's specific commands in my life to focus on his sovereignty and his glory and to live for his eternal kingdom. Every single one of those applications came from the pages of this book. We are the people of God and we're called to live like it. And we don't have the strength to do it on our own, but if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart and he can equip you and empower you to live a life of obedience to God. Not for your glory, not so you can say you're better than everybody else, but so that you can humbly live out the truth of the gospel that will make Jesus look great 
that will glorify His name, that will exalt His kingdom. And you can be a part of something incredible that He's doing in this world. We've been working all of our time to get to this point. Let's look at the Christ connection. There's a huge, huge Christ connection in the book of Ezra. As a matter of fact, apart from what happens in the book of Ezra, the fulfillment of the promises of the coming Messiah do not happen. They're not possible apart from what happens in this book. Number one, the rebuilding of the temple was necessary before the coming of the Messiah. Did you know that? The promises of God, the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah that, who was coming, they could not be fulfilled if there was no temple. It's an important key, and you wonder why is God moving the hearts of kings and rulers of nations? Because it's attached to his eternal plan, to his covenant with his people, and ultimately it's attached to the new covenant that comes only through Jesus Christ. Many passages support the understanding that the Messiah would come while the temple was standing. Remember, when the people returned to Israel, it was destroyed. It lay in ruins. Psalm 118 that I started our service with this morning is one of the Hallel Psalms, which praises God for his deliverance of Israel. And we're all familiar with this song because it says... In verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But it goes on in verse 25 to say, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah who will be blessed from the temple, from the house of the Lord. The only way that the Messiah could be blessed from the house of the Lord is if the temple was standing. And these are the exact words that the people proclaim as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy that a descendant of David would be anointed king and he would rule on an eternal throne. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. And we see in the book of Matthew chapter 21, verse 9 through 12, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on his final week before Passover, before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, the people are quoting this psalm. It's all connected in prophecy. God never forgets a promise. God never fails to keep his promises. Haggai, who was... In Jerusalem, as the second temple was being built, made a messianic prediction that the glory of the last temple, this next temple, would be greater than that of the first. I want to ask you a question. How was the second temple greater than the first temple? It was smaller. It was less impressive. It cost less money to build. Took less time to build. Why was the glory of the second temple greater than the glory of the of the first temple. It was greater because Jesus, the Son of God, stood and taught in the temple. As just a young child, he was brought there, fulfilling prophecy, obeying the commands of God. Anna and Simeon prophesied over him that he was the Messiah. He returned as a young boy and he taught the teachers in the temple. The very Son of God came back there, cleansed the temple. They were so angry about it, they falsely accused him, condemned him to death, crucified him. And he rose from the grave in the shadow of this temple that stood above where all of the life of Jesus played out. The second temple was greater than the first temple. Malachi confirms this prophecy. In another prophetic book, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The message, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. How could Jesus fulfill this prophecy and come to the temple if it hadn't been rebuilt? According to Daniel and his prophecy, again, who was a contemporary, lived at the same time as all of these people. 
According to Daniel, the temple would not only be standing at the Messiah's appearance, but it would be destroyed soon after the Messiah was there. The temple that was originally built by Ezra and improved by King Herod was where Jesus did most of his teachings and claimed to be the Messiah. And the New Testament records the words of Jesus who prophetically spoke in a sad tone about the fact that these things which you see, talking about the temple, he says, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was talking about Daniel's prophecy being fulfilled in less than 40 years after the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the destruction of the temple happened. And the third reason is that the, the Messiah's lineage, proving he was a descendant of David, he was the one who met the qualifications to be the Messiah. This had to be proven, which is why the book of Matthew starts off with what? genealogies of Jesus Christ, proving he could be the Messiah and he was the Messiah. Well, after the temple was destroyed, it was no longer and to this day it is no longer possible to prove anybody is the Messiah. That chance has come and gone. You either have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only one who could fulfill this role of the Messiah, or you have to believe that God just didn't keep his promises. And church, I want to tell you, God kept his promise. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only one that could have fulfilled these prophecies. In this short window of history, the temple is rebuilt. The Messiah comes through all these miraculous ways, through the, through the Greeks, through the Romans. Roads are built. Everything happens so God's prophecies can be fulfilled Jesus stands in the temple. He teaches. He's condemned. He's crucified. He's resurrected. And he tells us one day he's going to return. And then the temple is destroyed. Do you not see God's hand at work in the pages of history? And then we see the gospel. We see the gospel in these pages because the gospel is one story from beginning to end. The Bible the entire Bible reveals the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God created. Man fell. But God promised to redeem. He promised to send a Messiah. And Israel was the avenue that God sent that Messiah through. And even Israel's disobedience, even the exile, even the punishment of the children of Israel did not stop God's plan. Everything happened, every single piece of the puzzle happened exactly like God prophesied. Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilled all the law, fulfilled all the prophets. He died a sacrificial, atoning death on the cross for you, for me, for the sins of the world. He raised from the grave on the third day. He ascended into heaven and commissioned his church to go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why we are here today, in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we doing the job he's called us to do, church? We are called to proclaim the gospel. You can't save anybody. You can't change anybody's heart. But we know their hearts can be changed. We know that their souls can be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. Are we speaking the gospel? The last few weeks, our small group has been talking about sharing the gospel and how to share the gospel with friends, with family. It's not easy, but we're called to do it. And just as the people of Israel in the book of Ezra had to stand before the word of God proclaimed. We stand before the word of God proclaimed this morning in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And we have to respond. So I want to call us as a church to a time of response. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. We're going to sing a song as we close the service. This is a time of response where we're calling on God to do in us what he's promised he would do in us.
This is a time where we confess our sins. Where we recommit our lives to God. If anybody is here this morning that does not know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, give your life to Him. Say yes to Jesus. Believe the gospel. Call on Him as Lord. Call on Him as Savior. He will give you a new life. You will be born again. That's a little phrase I've been studying. It's a phrase that even the church, I think, has been a little scared of over the past generations because of some Bible thumpers that use it in the wrong way and use it to beat people over the head. But just stop and think of this thought of being born again. What if everything in your life, every mistake you've ever made could be forgiven? What if you could be given a brand new start today and the person you are, your very identity, changes. You become a new person. You have a brand new day. You have a clean slate. And you have the Holy Spirit of God living in your heart who promises to help you live the way He calls you to live. And He promises that He will accomplish what He started in you. That's the new birth. That's being born again. It's a brand new day. A brand new life. A brand new worldview. A brand new outlook. A brand new hope. And victory for the future. If anybody in here this morning does not know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, call on Him today and be born again. And church, if you know you're born again this morning, if you know your identity in Christ, are you living like it? Are you telling others about it? Just don't think there's a bad way to tell somebody else about Jesus. And the more we do it, the better we get at it. I want to close this in prayer and then we're going to sing a song together. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm reminded this week, even more than I've been in a long time, how living and active and alive your word is. Lord, it has spoken to my heart. It's brought conviction in my life. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin, of my disobedience, of my complacency. God, wake me up and call me to live a life that will make a difference in my generation. And God, I pray that you would do a supernatural work that only you can do and unite this group of people into a body of believers that has unity, that loves one another, and that shares the gospel. And God, I pray that you would be, bring revival right here on this spot, the same way that you did all those generations ago with your people. I believe your promises. I know you're just as much God today as you've always been. We just need you, Holy Spirit. Enable us, equip us, help us to abide in your truth and in your word in obedience to who you are and who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.